Hi, folks. You'll remember that I had a very lovely discussion with Rich Toffel about themes relating to deep conservatism and developmental politics. But today we're going to talk religion and spirituality. I was preparing for a recent interview with Daniel Fraga about his book, Ontological Design, and I noticed that Daniel quotes heavily from a book by Emanuel Swedenborg, translated by Lewis H. Taffel. So I asked Rich, and he said, yes, that's my great-grandfather, and it reminded me that he and I should have a chat about religion, which plays a significant role in both our lives. Hi, Rich. Hi, nice to be back. <laughs> um, I just, it occurred to me just before I started this, I wanted to ask you, what's the last music you listened to? Uh, the last music that I listened to was Yo-Yo Ma playing Somewhere Over the Rainbow, which I uh, played for church yesterday. Terrific. Um, how do you feel about God? And when you say God, what are you pointing to with that word? Okay, let's start with the, the uh, simple questions, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll ease in. <laughs> so what is God and, and how do I relate to it? Um, well, I'll, I'll answer the first, the second part first. I would say it's the most important thing in my life would be a relationship with God. So that spiritual guidance and relationship with what I see as God has been the North Star for everything else I've done in my whole life. So it's, it's extremely important. What it is exactly, uh, I'll never get my head around it exactly, but it's the life force of the universe, love and truth. And um, yeah, something that's inside of every element. Um, so it's uh, beyond, at some level beyond comprehension and at some level in a Christian tradition, which I'm from, it's, you can uh, kind of personally relate to it through the life of Jesus as an incarnation of God. But um, that would be in, in the broadest terms, sort of just the life force that everything that ex exists is, is uh, breathed into life by God. So. Yeah incomprehensible life force interiority of each thing yes <laughs> okay I, I like this kind of a question because it's one of those words where people argue about it and they have no reason to think they are pointing at the same thing with the use of the same letters <laughs> they can absolutely. be even diametric opposites with this word so absolutely absolutely <laughs> well why don't you uh before i launch you to even heavier philosophical topics uh give us a sense of um a bit of your personal and family background with Swedenborg. Yeah, my um, so Swedenborg comes on the scene in the um, 18th century, pretty much. He writes books in Sweden as a Christian mystic, first a scientist turned mystic, and he writes and um, and very shortly thereafter, in, in there's some um, readers of his stuff in Germany, particularly uh, some royal families in southern Germany. And my ancestors are librarians uh, in Southern Germany at Tübingen University and so forth. And they're very uh, involved in politics, getting in trouble uh, politically and so forth. And they are, they become early uh, readers of Swedenborg. And the ancestral, the Tafels before that were mainly Lutheran ministers. So it's ministers throughout generations and generations. And in fact, the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a cousin of mine. He's also a Tafel ancestor who stayed in Germany. But the rest came across. So they they were translating Swedenborg. They were scholars of Swedenborg when uh, a religion was created, uh, not by Swedenborg, but after his death by followers in Germany and in the United States. They became ministers in it, and scholars and translators and so forth. And so my great great grandfather was a Swedenborgian minister. My great grandfather uh, was a Swedenborg. My grandfather was president of the denomination at one point, 
And so, um, and then there's me, um, who was actually raised in the American Baptist Church and uh, transferred my ordination over to Swedenborgianism later in life. So that's the, the Taffel family history. And so there's a lot of Taffel connections and, and scholarship in the Swedenborgian church. I did not necessarily inherit that gene. I am not really a scholar and at, at the level these, these people were at as far as philosophy and theology. Um, you know, I majored in philosophy. I studied theology at Harvard and I read their stuff and I'm sort of like out of my element. I, it's, it's a lot of it is over me to be honest. So, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not in their league. What motivated that transfer over to the Swedenborgian church? Was it practical? Was it to be connected to the ancestors? Was it something about the teaching that won you over or drew you back? Yeah, it was, it was, well, I grew up asking a lot of questions. I was very precocious theologically as a kid in the Baptist church. And a lot in that church did not make sense. Uh, as a, even as a, you know, a 12 year old, I was asking questions that were getting me in trouble with the, with the church. And they were just sort of like, who is this kid? Where is it coming from? And um, a big part of my life at that age was playing soccer. I was taken to sports events on Sundays. And my dad would say, you know, you're not getting out of uh, church just to play soccer, which was quite thrilling to get out of church really and go play something else. And so we would have theological discussions and I would just say, look, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. Because it was a church that took the Bible literally um, and basically said only a very small group were saved, these kind of things. Um, a huge emphasis on Christ's death on the cross and the blood of Jesus didn't make sense. So my dad would say, you need to read your grandfather's books and you need to read Swedenborg. So I read Swedenborg as a kid, precocious kid growing up. And I was like, okay, this lens makes sense. So actually when I went to divinity school at Harvard, I also took courses at the Swedenborg House of Studies then called the Swedenborg School of Religion over in, in um, Newton, Massachusetts, and I was in Cambridge. And so I was taking courses there. As I was doing that, I was like, well, you know, am I really a Baptist or am I really a Swedenborgian? I'm theologically a Swedenborgian. The more I studied the denomination though, as a young man in my twenties, I kind of concluded there's no future for me in this church. It's, it's going to die out. There's only a handful of people left. The churches are all closing. There's just no runway for, um, you know, for me in that, in that path. And I was on the path to become the assistant minister, one of the assistant ministers at the chapel at Harvard. And my mentor, Peter Gomes, who was the chaplain, was American Baptist and said, just stay with American Baptist. It's, it's open-ended and you can kind of believe what you want and you'll be at this church, which is an ecumenical church that fits your theology. So don't worry about it. So I stuck with Baptist and, did, and got ordained American Baptist. So all those years, and then I, as we talked in the previous podcast, I got very involved in politics. And there was at one point an effort to have my ordination taken away uh, during the debates. I did a lot of religious debates through the 90s with the uh, Christian right. So there was an effort to take my ordination away, and, and that wasn't very encouraging. And then as you get older in life, you care much less about, oh, this is a career path, or what do people think? It's a dying thing, you know, that I worried about in my 20s. So after I finished my political world, I just said, hey, I'd like to transfer my ordination to this denomination. And, uh, and that's how I, that, that was, that was, it was kind of like, you know, this is what I've always believed anyway. And as I got older, it became more so. And the debates that I did in the 90s with more, um, which we, you would call evangelical Christians or fundamentalist Christians, made me more angry 
that um, Jesus was being represented by these people. And I, I really wanted no connection to that. So for all those reasons, I, I, I switched out and uh, didn't really plan on taking a church or anything like that. I just went online and then this church uh, opportunity opened up. So you've been attracted to the, uh, let's say, more rational, more natural worldview, theological suppositions of the Swedenborgians all along. I'm curious whether you uh, ever took on or experimented with internal practices that you felt were inspired by or connected with Swedenborg's material. Um, yeah, internal practices. One thing, Swedenborgianism is what you might, some would call, and, and I would often call a mystical Christianity. It's more like Kabbalah or um, Sufi in Islam. We're more cousins. I find much more similarity with Rumi, for example, than I do with a lot of Christian theologians. So, so as far as practice, yes, I've been always sort of, I would say, connected to the other world spiritually as a kid, as an adult. I've kept dream journals, um, had very divinely mystical connections and experiences in life that are crystal clear to me that they make a lot of sense, might not to other people. And so um, was always in that world that um, we're very connected with the other side and people from the other side and communities from the other side are engaged in your life. God is engaged in your life. And I felt that personally, um, which was very important because um, during the period where I was shaken by Christianity as it was organized, if I didn't have those personal experiences and what I, you know, divine connection, revelatory experience, epiphanies, I would have bailed on the whole project if I had to judge it by the human beings that were uh, calling it Christianity. That, that wasn't my experience. So I, there was definitely a, a mystical path and a divine path that was very um, real to me the whole time. I'm interested in the sense of being close to Rumi and things like that. You know, people who aren't in a particular religion tend to think of it as homogenous, right? Ah, oh, that's just Christianity. Mm -hmm. But Christianity has always been marked by deep divides <laughs> of mm -hmm. various kinds. And one of those is between the kind of Christianity that's a little bit museum-like. It wants to tell you about the time in the past when God was involved with people in the world and the subsects of Christianity that believe that's an ongoing process in some way. Do you feel like um, mystically oriented Christianity and mystically oriented tradition in general has more in common with the mystics in other traditions than they do with their own? Or how do you adjudicate that? Yeah, well, I would say the mystics are where when we when you study Rumi or you study uh, other mystical traditions, we find we I find we have a lot in common. So we're we're kind of coming at um, spiritual understanding, and it's it's striking how similar it is across lines. So in that case, yes, one of the um, misconceptions I think of mystics is that they are um, people who pull out of society, navel gaze, you know, and and uh, meditate all day and just read and pray, and they're not engaged in the world. My experience is that mystics are extremely engaged in the world, and that's, that's how you grow spiritually. And so uh, that's been very helpful to me in my own life as far as um, I, I've been sort of very much in the lion's den on, in American politics and in American business and so forth. But the mysticism is, is a clear um, a, a guidance. It's definitely not a museum piece. It's a very ongoing piece, and it's very revelatory in your own life. Like there's revelations in your life and every day is a revelation. So it's very much not looking back to a time when God did this. It's, it's what is God doing now? 
Um, one thing that really attracted me to Swedenborgianism that aligns to um, Integral, why, why I, was, I was attracted to Swedenborg first and Integral because of it, is it has a um, evolutionary spiritual uh, understanding of history and the Bible and our lives. And so it's very progressive. Life is constantly moving on. We're constantly being challenged. We're constantly growing. So it's a very much daily ongoing uh, spiritual practice to grow. Yeah, that's a fascinating element to, I mean, some aspects of religion have had a very hard time incorporating evolutionary deep time and novel evolution, things like that. Others have had a very easy time incorporating it because some of their mystical uh, underpinnings have allowed for that. I'm curious what you think makes that difference. Like um, the aspects of religion that push back hard against evolution and then end up in a schism with the dominant science of the day. What do you think is motivating that resistance when there are so many aspects of each religion that embrace that kind of a vision? Well, I think they got the, the people that would have a problem with evolution, scientific evolution. And I did grow up with them. And I remember it was extremely convoluted. It was like, well, early, early Adam and Eve were bent over and that's why the skeletons are like this or it was really quite, in, it was really quite insane, like to, to try to twist what we were learning in science. So I think what happened there was in a nutshell, they came to make the Bible and its writings a literal idol. They worship at this idol. So everything has to fit through that lens, a literal interpretation. And what they will say is, and said to me many times, if this isn't literally true, then I don't know what's true. You know, so, so you're kind of stuck. So therefore, if it's a choice between, say, science, saying this about evolution, and then this um, over here, a, a literal story. But even as a kid, I would say, do we believe in Genesis 1 or Genesis 2? They're two different stories, you know, and they're, they're, they're literally two different creation stories right in the Bible. So the contradiction is right there. Um, again, one thing that attracted me about Swedenborgianism is it said, oh, the Adam and Eve story is written in correspondences, which is a language of uh, allegory, and it's a description. And actually, the seven days of creation are seven days of human development. that All human beings have the potential to move through on Earth. So it's very, you know, resonates with integral theory or, or growing up in, in other faiths. And I found that just completely helpful, fascinating, and um, certainly not ever to look back at that as a scientific story of how the world was created. That moment when a person says, if this isn't literally true, then I don't know what's true. That's a fascinating moment because it speaks to seemingly a, a kind of anxiety and an unwillingness to trust that there's something on the other side of that feeling of not knowing what's true. And so when you look at that kind of fundamentalist literalism, mm -hmm. do you currently view that as a, a normal developmental phase that people go through? Or do you think of it as evidence of a certain kind of maybe psychophysiological unhealth or imbalance? It's very cyclical. And uh, we're in a period right now. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, let me explain how I, I, I understand it. Because we all want certainty. Uh, we all have anxiety about tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen. We have anxiety about our futures. So a story that tells you, look, I do have the answers. And they're very quite simple. And here's the three steps. 
And so I, um, that is very comforting. And so the more complex the world gets, as we're in a period right now of great flux, more people in a short period are going to be returning to like a traditional mindset because of the comfort it provides of clarity. Even when the clarity is in contradiction, someone, a leader will say, well, this is what it means. And this is what it means to follow this literally. And it's clear. At some level, you know, I've thought, you know, I've, I've looked down on that. I've been condescending of that worldview, but I will also say on a more positive side, I met many people in my life whose life was out of control and uh, particularly around addictions, drugs, sexual addiction, whatever it was, and, you know, cheating on their wife, having alcoholism and the whole idea that there's very clear rules. You don't cheat on your wife. You don't drink. You don't dance, you know, you, you, you pray, you stay in the group, save their life. So I respect that there is a, there is a role, a very practical role for that very literal understanding of, of the world that helps people at a certain level of personal evolution. And I also understand right now, confronted with a very um, complicated world. If you know, when you say the modern world is, is complicated enough with its consumerism, the postmodern world is completely saying we don't know if what a man or a woman is, what's really you know what's true, or what's all of our truths are not true, and the narrative of our country isn't true, and nothing. So in that period of confusion, I think it draws people back to just please someone, more of an authoritarian person, tell us that we're good, we're a good country. We're a good people. Remind us that our religion is the best, that we are saved. They are not. That I'm on the right team, that I've done the right things, and that I'm going to fight for my, my tribe. I understand how that, that creates that. It's a very unhealthy energy, but I'm certainly experiencing that right now in the world of people wanting to go back to a, uh, that. And that's what literal interpretations of scripture, for example, offer to people. Just a crystal clear, this is it. And um, you don't need to figure this out personally. This is not a personal thing for you to figure out. Accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Come to church, support us financially, and stay away from these things, and, and you will be saved. And, uh, and it doesn't turn out bad for a lot of those folks. I mean, a lot of that. Where I saw it personally when I was doing a lot of the gay and lesbian work in the 90s was a lot of parents of fundamentalists who had gay kids would say the same thing. This is a horrible choice. I have to choose my child or I have to choose God. You, the, you've put me in a terrible situation. I can either, and if, if what you're saying is that gay people are loved by God and they're okay, then nothing, everything is questioned that I believe. So I watch people dispose of their kids and literally put their kids out of their home in the name of, a, of God, in the name of Jesus, and they were, okay, that was a horrible thing, but I'm consistent with the faith. So that's how powerful that, that, that desire to be in the in-group and be of the truth is. That reminds me of some of the ways I think about uh, uh, teasing apart morality and ethics. Right? There's a number of different ways to approach that, but I've often thought of ethics as understanding what's right in a given ethos, a given system of some kind. Mm -hmm. And morality as a kind of strength or capacity to enact your values, 
uh, which seems to grow through difficult decisions. And some people with a, a much simpler, we might even think of as backwards notion of what's right can have more mm, personal capacity to act on their values than people who have a much more nuanced version. And that becomes really problematic. I wonder if you, you know, do you see those people gain some kind of strength and clarity from having had to make a really hard decision, regardless of which way they ended up making it? The, well, I wouldn't say that they, uh, I wouldn't say it's been a pleasant experience The people that I've seen have to make that decision. So let's use the, you know, do I choose my faith or do I choose my child? Uh, that doesn't usually work out well for the people involved. Uh, they are, de- they've, they've made a horrible decision, frankly, I would say morally that they've kicked their kid out. Um, usually they'll spend years of, um, with guilt and shame and embarrassment, even though they might be applauded for what they've done. And there's often um, apologies and a, and a request for forgiveness later in life. So it, I don't think it does, it, 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 like I, uh, it does help people in the short run, but the world is complex and they're going to keep using that filter to try to solve things. And it's going to keep running up against the complexity of the world. One of the ironies in my life also, it, it's interesting that it happens uh, for me around the gay and lesbian issue, uh, is that uh, many of the people who I debated uh, and many religious leaders who opposed me years later come to me to say, hey, I need your advice. My kid's gay. My kid's trans. I don't know what to do. So I, I, part of me is there's a part of schadenfreude like, ha ha, you know boy, you're, this is God's sense of humor. But I'm also, they ask me why, and I say, well, because you are seeking to grow with God, your life is becoming more complex. And that's spiritual evolution. That's a good thing. And you're becoming a more loving person. And this is your chance to do it. And so they understand that. They understand that, that, that a religion that works in our childhood evolutionary is not a religion necessarily. It's going to work into adulthood, into old age. We should all be moving through something our whole life. And so um, getting locked in and frozen into it, what I would say is a childhood religion. It's very simple. It's very innocent. It's very straightforward. When it hits the complexities of the world, it doesn't, it doesn't do well. Another example is that people who have that worldview um, very often for example, they'll have someone themselves or a family member who gets cancer. This has happened a couple of times recently. And they'll say, I am, I've been betrayed by God. I've gone to church. I've prayed every week. And so they look at religion as an amulet, as a protection against evil. That this, the heathen aren't protected. I'm protected. I pray. I've given my money. I've attended. How can my wife get cancer? So therefore, I don't believe at all anymore. Faith is out the window because that, that literal interpretation of faith is fragile and it's like glass. It cracks against the complexity of the real world that it's in. And um, when they speak to me about it, I, I say, you know, I don't think you can have faith without doubt. I, I don't think you can inherit faith from your parents. I think you must, as a natural process, doubt things, question everything, throw everything out the window, and, and so this is a chance for you to rethink, and maybe that God of love can come through all this pain that you're going through, but it might be a more complex faith on the other side. And very often, that is, that's what happens as well. But some people, that's it for religion for them. They, they, be, they become anti-religious. Uh, 
several things about that fascinate me. I mean, uh, there's a, it's interesting the degree to which modern Western horror films uh, center around Catholic imagery mm-hmm. and sense that, well, in, in a pinch, you can call the exorcist and he's got a legal guide that will, because it's a superstructure that controls all magic. Yes. <laughs> right. And uh, Buddhism played that role in some areas of Tibet and India. Right. It's this idea that we evolved this new legalistic code. You know what to do. You've got the ruling, et cetera, et cetera. And if that's not there, if it's not going to control magic, then what good is it to me? Right. Uh, which tells you something about how that person views the status of religion in the world. If it's not going to do that, it basically isn't religion to them. Right. Uh, and that's very intriguing in terms of what religion is. We, you know, Bruce and I at the Foundation for Integral Religion and Spirituality have thought a lot about how you generalize the notion of religion outside of mythic membership layers of consciousness and history. Mm-hmm. What can we say in general that it is that might apply to all different phases of individuals and culture? What's your sense of what religion is in its most general version? In its most general version, I think it's the way, in the way that politics is the way citizens organize to solve things. Religion is the way that human beings who are searching for meeting find communities that they can gather in to do meaning making. And um, I do see that. And then that would be what attracted me to Swedenborg as well as he does see it as a very evolutionary process that, that religion is constantly evolving into different uh, new levels of understanding and growth. And so um, another thing that I liked about it, his teachings, as he says, all faith paths are good. That was a, that's a radically different statement than what I grew up with. And that he's, he's a mystic, he, he has astral projection, you could say, to heaven and hell and says he sees Muslims in, in heaven. He says that the African race is God's favorite race, you know, in 1700s and leads to uh, many abolitionists come out of Swedenborg's teaching. So he has these views of inclusion, of radical inclusion, all different faith paths. And essentially, um, it boils down to do you love others and do you love your neighbor? truly. And it doesn't matter what you say. He also reports in other places that Christians on the other side, after they transition after death, were often given the best information, but behave the worst. And so they're actually, that's a startling um, revelation of his time that there were bishops and popes and clergy and so forth who didn't choose heaven. He, He says that's a choice. So yeah, I see religion as the organizing body. We do the best we can to, um, figure, figure out, uh, this. And, and, uh, I do think there's an importance of meeting in community right now. We're living in a period that's quite radically individualistic, the consumer culture, uh, the industrial age, the, um, the iPhone. I mean, I can, I, I can do it all myself has been detrimental, I think. And we're going to need to get back together with other human beings in community and support each other. And I think religion can provide that too. I know all the bad stuff about it, um, and I hear everybody has a, a, a sad story, but it's quite an amazing experience being a pastor of a church in a community, and I can see why people don't want to build community, because it sucks. It's hard work. It's difficult people, and we're all failed, and we're all stepping on each other's toes and hurting each other's feelings fairly constantly, but that's what we have to learn, that skill set of coming back together, regardless of what, uh, what we're, for what reason, but we do need to build community back up. I think religion has historically offered that and it's passed something down to the next generation. It's like, you don't have to start from scratch. Here's the ancient wisdom of our faith. 
figure out how it applies to you. Religio. <laughs> yeah, I think that's essential. You know, when I look at the world situation, I we have a lot of huge problems and we have a lot of solutions to them. So we're stuck at the viable implementation obstacle. And it seems unlikely to me that people can mobilize with enough extra energy and extra shared meaning to implement solutions or mobilize to create secure communities if we fail to implement solutions and the system comes apart without something strongly analogous to religion. Yes, um, I, I, I'm in that uh, sort of political world. I'm in the social entrepreneur world where we're trying to solve big problems. And I, I think you're exactly right. There is every book on uh, polarization ends with five things we can do. And they're usually the five very similar things. What the writers, what thought leaders cannot do is they don't know how to organize human beings together. We, we're losing that skill set. And those solutions all require people of differences coming together. And that's the, that's the challenge right now. I think that's the greatest challenge. And I believe that um, houses of worship are going to be a place that we could start. Uh, I'm talking to a rabbi right now who is doing some civil, civil society lectures in his synagogue. And we're looking at maybe there are trainings we could do because religious communities, as bad as the secular culture thinks they are, are probably the last community that's diverse in age, gender, orientation. Um, and so it's a good last place to save and build. And uh, regardless of whatever faith it is. So I, I'm, I'm a, I am a strong proponent of, um, I'm a practical person. So when people say, I've got these solutions, I always say, to do that, you're going to have to build a coalition. You're going to have to build a community. And um, what's working against us right now is that most people right now see the toxic nature of the public square, for example, and say, it's so gross that I'm out. Why tweet? Why say anything? Why get attacked? Why try to be inclusive? Like just, I'm checking out. Well, what that has done is just allow the toxic folks to, to dominate and, um, and there, it's a very dangerous path that we're on if they, if they continue with that. So, um, yeah, I do think that uh, community is the way out. I think religion, uh, the best kind of religion, is, is a way forward. You were talking about helping people move through a kind of what I might call a religious upgrade, opening to doubt and complexity as part of their faith and not just assuming their faith was inherited from their parents and is therefore guaranteed, made me think about um, the way we relate to children religiously. Mm -hmm. Because in setting up communities, very often one of the tools has been to pass on a narrative and bring people together around that narrative. But in passing that narrative on to children, we run into a kind of ambiguity or a kind of choice making around, is it important to install that really early so they can start working on it, start processing and start coming together with other people? Um, or is there a too early, right? We, we've codified things like statutory rape into society because we mm -hmm. go, oh, there's certain things where if it happens too early, it is essentially going to be traumatic, regardless mm -hmm. of the intentions of the people involved. Mm -hmm. Is there something like that with religion? Is there too early or not? Well, it's a great question. Um, uh, something I really wrestle with and I'm experiencing right now. I was kind of maybe the, one of the last generations of kids that went through Sunday school 
through the whole whole shebang. Um, what I'm experiencing now, um, I think there's an argument for both sides. I'm super grateful. I'm grateful that I was raised in the Baptist church. I'm great. It gave me an incredible understanding of the Bible. I'm grateful that I understand deeply traditional religion. It's made me a great cultural translator that I can deeply at a heart level, understand the goodness of fundamentals Christians. And I am now pastoring people who are like 28 years old. And in my sermons, I have to explain what a gospel is. I have to say what the new Testament means. I have to talk about who Jesus was. I have to say what the disciples, because it's completely new. There is no, their parents have no faith. And Jesus is kind of what they've heard from the Christian right a bit. And they don't know. They're just like, Jesus said that. I had no idea that him without sin cast the first stone. I've, I've said it a million times. I had no idea it was in the Bible. So the good news in the social um, entrepreneur sector that I'm in is they're very lovely people. These Gen Z and millennial crowd that I'm working with, they want to do good. The downside is they don't have a framework at all. They don't have anything to kind of run it against. So for moral questions, they're kind of at sea and it's very relativistic and it's sort of like consent. You do what you do rules. Um, I do what I do. Um, and it's kind of a made up on the spot and it's somewhat exhausting, uh, I find. And so I am also observing it's a very fragile generation. And I think that's one reason why the, the canceling of people I disagree with, because that's, which is a very dangerous, incredibly dangerous trend. Um, but that's, and, and that is going to have very negative consequences. But the idea that if I don't agree with you, I need to cancel you is I'm a fragile in my ideas. I can't be challenged. So I am worried about it. So I don't know, you know, I, I kind of, I think, gosh, I wish they, you know, you know, we do baptize babies and we do say, raise them in the faith. And, um, and teach them to pray and so forth. And then sort of at a certain age, the idea is you kind of do your own thing. And most generally, um, most young people, when they turn that age and they can do their own thing, they flee. They generally flee the church uh, for a while, often come back. There's some studies that are showing they're not coming back at all. So uh, it's a great question. I would, if I would have to say what I would prefer, I would prefer that everybody have some spiritual teachings as a kid. Um, indoctrination or cruel, abusive teachings, of course, you know, I, we all agree, you know, indoctrination and so forth. Um, and everybody has a cruel, every Catholic can tell you a cruel Catholic school story. And, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty horrible. But um, I would, I would say that uh, this generation strikes me as a bit fragile, and they, they're making up this framework on their own. Um, one interesting thing, and in, again, in Swedenborg's theology, is he describes that uh, the book of Revelations for him is, is describing a new age. The phrase the new age comes from a sermon about Swedenborg. It was called Messenger of the New Age. So he says we're in this period that the church will die out as we know it because it has failed so badly. And that will we'll emerge as a new, deeper understanding of God. So we're kind of in this period. And he says very radically, and it will be led by Gentiles, people outside the church, because the church, many people in the church are so lost in their teachings. So that's a radical idea. So I'm open to that too, that we could be in a period and some of the young people that I deal with, I'm like, you're the most Christian person I've ever met at 27. I was certainly not that way. I'm probably not that way now. You're a very sweet and kind person and there's no guile 
and you're working it through on a daily basis and you've not been exposed to any particular much religion at all, you're curious. So it's a, it's a very interesting question because uh, I'm seeing evidence of either, either on both for both arguments. Must be a very interesting position to be in a Swedenborgian church with, with him having this sort of prophecy about churches dying out as the epicenter of religion for the new age. Must make it a very, uh, very open, very fertile, very interesting kind of spot to be in. It is. It's. Uh, I've given that a lot of thought too. So he Swedenborg does not start a church. That's the misconception. He says my ideas that I'm writing. This is a spiritual revelation that's coming into the world. And these things will be commonplace in generations. By God's coming into the world, this will happen um, in this new age. That's what the second coming is, is a coming within people. It's, it's a transformation within souls and consciousness of the world. It's not physically Jesus coming again. So that's different. And then he says, and he doesn't create a, a church, but people are so turned on by his writings. They're so radical. They start creating coffee houses and meetings and um, it, it was very attractive to artists and the transcendental movement and so forth. And then people said, you know, ministers said, maybe we should create our own thing because we're so different than Christianity. It's like a completely different theology. And that decision, you, um, I've often wondered if um, the Swedenborgians are the uh, last one in, first one out. In other words, they followed in on that old church model and they went pretty heavy on it. If you saw my church in D.C., it is a classically Christian-looking, you know, right out of Gothic church. And the Swedenborgian churches are quite gorgeous. And we have the robes and the collar and everything. And we imitated Christianity um, very much as it was. And so we are also experiencing a vastation, a, um, you know, a winding down of our denomination at some level. And so I both, you know, it, you could say that the, he sort of, predicts that, 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 that Christianity uh, as we knew it is going to have to go away um, because it failed so badly to represent God in the world and something new is coming into place. And, um, and so, yeah, that's the interesting part. And, and when I ask younger people about, you know, when they come to church, what's the biggest obstacle? They usually say church, like that word, like I don't, that building and that word. So, yeah, it is a very interesting place. We might just be um, messengers. Uh, we might be just carrying a torch into this next period, which is going to be quite different from anything we've seen before. I'm, I've always been intrigued by the the pageantry of religion. You know, I've spent a lot of time with Nietzsche, and one of the interesting things Nietzsche has to say about the Catholic-Protestant divide is that in uh, trying to turn toward a book and away from the cult of Mary and the ornate churches, they sort of lost the most important thing in favor of the least important part of religion, as far as he was concerned. And when I look at you, you mentioned the robes. Um, there's something beautiful that our current Western culture has gained in terms of its casualness. There, there's an ease and an openness and a diversity that's really liberating and I think worth protecting and extending. But at the same time, there's something about the, the, the uniformity and the vividness and the, the sacred garb and the sacred structures that set you apart from the mundane that seems important as well. You know, what's your sense of the, uh, the utility of sacred pageantry in creating a world in which 
religion can be diversified beyond the churches, but still function? Yeah, that's a great question. And I sort of lived through that in that uh, the Baptist church that I grew up in was so plain and so boring and so flat and, you know, brown pews, white paint across, and they were really um, grounded in a theology that we are not going to be like the papist. We are not going to have ornate anything. Uh, no icons, no pictures, nothing beautiful particularly. And so the churches are very proudly plain. And that made me sad. Uh, I, I just was very sad. And when I would go, when I go to a cathedral or uh, the church that I'm at right now, I mean, that it's ornate stained glass. Um, there is something transcendent about it. So in that respect, Nietzsche, uh, a champion of Christianity. <laughs> um, I agree with him on that, that uh, there is a balance between, as you're saying, the tradition and the casual nature of things too. Um, it can go to either extreme. And I've been involved with both. So I've certainly been very involved with the Catholic church and I've been in, uh, involved with um, high church traditions that really get obsessive about every detail, every way you turn, how you hold the cup, and so there's a beauty to that. It's, it is a production. It's like a play. And they're putting it on. They take it very seriously. The chapel at Harvard with Peter Gomes was like that. And after Sunday communion, we would review the communion, how it was done, what was right, how we could make it more uh, sacred. So I respect those are kind of two extremes. I will say on, on, in my little church, um, I wear a collar and I also usually wear jeans. And um, you know, open the word and light the candles and encourage people to breathe. I think having some practices that are ancient, we, we do invocation, we do confession, and these are ancient parts, you know, scripture and prayer and, I, and a benediction. I explain that these are ancient parts. Now, some of my younger people, extremely pragmatic, extremely utilitarian, who are coming from no tradition, have said, I love what you say, but I wish it was a podcast. Like, can we just, I'm just going to come in when you start speaking. Can we cut out the readings? Can we cut out the prayers? I just want to hear. So I, we, the, you could say the Protestant uh, Reformation took that mystery away and made everything knowledgeable through the word. And that the enlightenment took that to another level that everything's practical. What do I need to know? Everything's in our head. And uh, what I love about um, liturgy and practice is that it's the heart and it's the mystery and there's something beautiful about that and so uh, i'm i'm again uh, um, I'm, I'm in both camps i'm not neither one i understand that i don't want to come across as someone who is not accessible as a, a minister and at the same time i want to make sunday worship different than uh, a ted talk and that's what a lot of people have said to me is i really like what you say it's sort of like a ted talk and that's their biggest compliment, but they like, I'm just going to come in after the readings to hear what you say. So they're not interested in any of the practice. And I think the practice has a power in and of itself. In the Roman tradition, I've always found the, 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 the preaching has been not all that great. And they would just say to me in the Catholic church, it's not about the sermon. It's about the Eucharist. It's about the pageantry. It's the liturgy. You're missing the point. It's the mystery. And that's an, that's a position. And then yeah, that, that extreme position I saw in the Baptist church, I think there's a nice middle ground. And I think in our consumer culture right now, that's so very flat, um, anything that brings mystery and beauty and art um, and pageantry into our lives is a good thing. 
Yeah, it's an interesting mix now. We've got so many people interested in uh, zeroing in on what they think are uh, good, intelligible, inspiring articulations, like, hey, can I have the podcast version of this? And at the same time, this really deep, generalized yearning for participatory immersion mm-hmm. that people are longing for through virtual reality or through the next Marvel movie. And a Marvel movie to me is a stained glass window. You know, it's people are looking for those aesthetical engagement dimensions, but they're often not seeing that that goes together with religion and with the philosophy and with the internal practice. Yes. Um, And I've had um, some serious discussions with theologians about Marvel uh, Mm -hmm. comic movies, which I'm not particularly a fan of, but they have really made a, a point that they're operating at an allegory level of spirituality and explain it to me in great detail. It's not, it's just not my thing, but they have explained it and then explained that's why it's working for people. That's why, you know, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, these are all, you know, in a sense, um, modern religious tales for people, allegories and spiritual stories for people who are trying to make sense, good versus evil and so forth. So um, it's interesting. I don't relate to them all that well, but I know that for a generation that they'll speak in that, in that language of those, um, that media that they grew up with as being very formative. Well, especially when people engage it in the movie theater, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's always fascinated me and an era where there's so much uh, skepticism and dissociation from the temples that there are these, nonetheless, these places where people gather in public to sit quietly and still in the dark and collectively contemplate some kind of archetypal fantasy of, of reality. Um, that's a very interesting function. I hope the theaters don't die out, but I hope the temples can capture more of that spirit. Yeah, and it's what's also interesting is that it's global. I asked a friend of mine at one time who's in the uh, TV production company business. And I said, you know, why another Spider-Man? Like, I don't get it. You know, why another, you know, why another superhero? I loved him as a kid, but those are for kids. And one thing he pointed out to me was just from a market perspective, that these are stories that they can produce in China and show in China, and they can completely relate to them. So they have a globe. They don't need language so much. It's not so much. And so they have a global interest. So your point is well taken in that it's not just a a group coming together in you know the United States at a movie theater. It's movie theaters around the world that are interested in those sagas and those stories, as we've all been for a long time. But it is maybe one of the, another one of those last places that we're we're still gathering. The role of um, let's say uh, affording and safeguarding community ritual has long been associated with the churches. And to me, there are two important elements that that might provide that we're lacking collectively. One is by going through, uh, say, ritual ordeals at moments of your life, by you know, coming of age or getting married or whatever those things are, you mark out your life as if it contains a series of developmental stage-like transformations, and it might incline people toward uh, a deeper relationship to maturation. Mm-hmm. The other aspect of it is something around the fragility you were talking about, right? That a lot of the um, fresh, open, tuned in people who don't come out of the religious background may be overly fragile in their cultural participation and a little bit unguided now they're trying to create new rituals for themselves. And I wonder, especially thinking about really old forms of ritual that were much closer to ordeal, um, whether or not the 
absence of collective rituals leaves us fairly weak, fairly fragile, that we haven't had certain kinds of intensities of experience that teach us that touching the underlying core of life is something you have to do regularly and that you have to do that in some ways um, in opposition to or at least distanced from the social discourse that's going on in everyday society. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right about that. The, what is interesting is for those milestones, still even the most secular person, what do they want to do? They want to come back to church to do their wedding. They, wanna, they, want, they want me to come do their funerals. You know, not so much uh, uh, still their baptisms or their babies. They'll never come to church again, but they'll come and ask me if I'll baptize a baby. So there is some sort of that, that still remains. Um, what it, where I really see it uh, missing as an element is in um, like a confirmation process. I think one of the reasons why we're experiencing such a lost generation of young boys is we really have not, we don't have very clear um, milestones. Um, in Judaism, you had your bar mitzvah. In the church, you were kind of, you had your first confirmation, but there's no mark of adulthood. And we're kind of just, I think that's, a, that, that is a missing ritual that we're missing in the culture. And I think that it was extremely helpful, but it's pretty much gone. So I do think that the rituals uh, of faith and religion did provide those levels. And I think there's, um, you may have read about these boot camps that people go to that are quite aggressive and you, right? You go to them and they kick the shit out of you. You live in tents and you're with all men and it's, you know, you're, qu you're quasi-military and how attractive that is to, to men. Um, some sort of going through something. And we know in the more, you know, going back in traditional religions, there was uh, very, you know, the boy would go out and, you know, hunt and have a spiritual experience uh, to become a man. There was these spiritual passages, particularly in the manhood that I think we've really lost. And I think it's very confusing. So I definitely think that the religion can offer those sort of milestones. I think that the liturgy can offer structure to a, a time together. Um, I did ask a group of friends, uh, uh, younger people at our little community that we're trying to grow. What did you like? Why are you staying involved with this? Because you come from essentially a very secular background and your friends, one of them said, I don't want it on my LinkedIn, like that I'm involved. I don't want people to know uh, because I would be mocked. And so I said, so why stick with it? What, what do you remember? What's happened? Was it a great sermon or, you know, what? And um, the president of our church passed away almost a year ago this week. And um, she was single. She didn't have any kids. She didn't have a, a will or a power of attorney and all that kind of stuff. So the church played that role. And I, I played a role. Her neighbor who's a member of the church played a role. And they cited that. And I just said, well, that's kind of, that's not unusual for church to, to do that. Like to, that's uh, not a, it was a, yeah, it was a lot of work, but it's not an unusual thing that you would look after a devoted member who's in the hospital. And they said, I just don't, I've never been in a community that did that. And I wonder what's going to happen to me. Like if, if I'm in a crisis, who would look after me? So I think those, that's also a ritual, the ritual of caring for each other and you pray for each other, but you really know that people are struggling and we put together a fund for people in trouble. So I think even all those aspects of community, the rituals and the rituals of uh, how do you care for people? And that that is a shocker to people. There is a system. There was a way that that's really churches created hospitals. Churches were once a very uh, communitarian community of looking after each other. And that's, that's a shocker to, to a modern person is a sad reflection on the state of church.
The notion of a person who doesn't want other people to know they're associated with the church raises two interesting things. Maybe I'll ask them separately. The first is around that sense of embarrassment that people have. When I tell people that I love God, right, and that's an expression of my experience and my feeling, uh, although I've got a very nuanced uh, analytic description of what that means. The most nuanced. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to need a lot of quotation marks here. (laughs) I I wouldn't say that I'm embarrassed to say it, but it's strange to me. I'm like, what an odd thing this is. Isn't it ridiculous that it turns out I love God? I have this feeling. And I wonder whether there's an element of the strangeness and the absurdity of that, which is made always a part of religion. Really, Kierkegaard dug into that quite a bit. But if people don't realize that it's okay for it to be weird, that that contributes to the sense of, of embarrassment or reluctance to even experiment with those kinds of confessions. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, definitely I've, I've had people say, Rich, I think you're really smart. It just kind of, uh, it blows me away that you would be a minister. I mean, because why would you throw that away for, you know, archaic mythic structure that is nonsense. And when you could be doing so much good in the world um, in very practical ways, because you can do business, you can do politics, you can live in the modern world. I'm just, you know, there's like, I'm fascinated that you would cling to myths and um, dead texts and kind of defend them that have done more harm than good in the world. So that is a, that's kind of a, a fascinating take about it, but here's the upside. It, yeah. I think in 1940, 1950, if I had said, I'm a Christian, I go to church, I'm a Presbyterian. Everybody would say they did. Everybody would point to something they did synagogue, mosque, church. And you'd be the oddball. If you said, we don't, we don't go anywhere like, oh, the, so the Jones down the street are atheists. That would have been the odd thing. And they would have maybe been ridiculed and maybe even suffered for it. Who knows? But that conformity did not create a better Christianity or a better faith community. It created just a culture of conformity uh, that you all go to church. And we know it didn't necessarily lead to practice in, in many, many, many cases. So the good news today is that if it's embarrassing, if it's awkward, if it's complicated, that it's more real, that you've act to say it, you've had to think about it and you're probably going to have to defend it. And, um, and then the other part of that is that the groups who have the most airtime for, for Christianity, for example, have been the evangelical and the fundamentalist. Um, they are the flamethrowers. They're going to get the attention in the media. The, the secular media loves them. They love the secular media. And so there's that, so you're also now defending them. So a lot of people will say to me, like, how could you, you know, you're, you're an openly gay man. How could you be in the Christian church? Christian church is, is homophobic. I absolutely get where they're coming from. That's all they've ever seen. I have to explain to them, you know, what our church teaches and what they believe and how the church has evolved on that issue in many, many cases. And that's certainly in our church. But I, you're also dealing with the baggage of very failed, a very failed Christian experience uh, for people. And for secular people, and I don't blame them. I don't, I, I understand where they're coming from. Yeah, I appreciate the, uh, the increased likelihood of real engagement and authenticity when it's a difficult, complicated uh, process to go through. 
seems to me there's something like a, a Dunning-Kruger effect where people who aren't very good at something exaggerate the degree to which they're good at it. Sometimes I think the people who are the least religious are the most likely to tell other people how religious they are. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but there's another element of the, of the keeping it secret, which is interesting to me, because there's a passage in the gospel where I, the Christ character says, you know, pray to your father in secret. And it's always seemed to me that there is an element of our religious life in terms of its ability to change us that is a little bit proportional to how, how personal, how private, how deep we can take that. And there's a risk that you lose some of that when it becomes social, right? Mm -hmm. When you're letting other people know that, I mean, obviously, in order to perform that collaborative community production element of religion that we need, it's got to be interpersonal. But in terms of inner transformation, very often performing it for people and letting them know sabotages the, the deep change that the religion can help us achieve. Absolutely. So and we, we talked earlier about epiphany or revelation or the personal experiences. So people often come to me to have like translate their dreams or this really crazy synchronicity happened. Can you talk me through? What do you think? And when I do, I basically... Um, say, you probably shouldn't share this with other people because one, they're going to explain it away and you're going to explain it away. And it's true to you. It, it is in a language, a spiritual language that only you really will get, but anybody can kind of justify it and poo-poo it. So just treasure it. It's your secret. It's your experience and be careful who you share it with. I wouldn't necessarily go around. So I think you're right in that sense that um, a lot of our experience it's, 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 it's intimate and you don't share your intimacies with everyone. The other extreme are people who are constantly sharing their faith in a desire to save other people's souls is so sad, uh, sadly not the case. I mean, it's just so obvious that they are not at all people who are screaming at people to accept Christ or, 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 or witnessing, um, they have something clearly in their head that they are needing to accomplish. I know they've been told by their leaders that if they don't talk, get this person, they, that person could go to hell. So there's that. But it's all about me, the um, evangel uh, sharing with you. It's really not about you. It's not a compassion. It's not a caring. It's not worried about where you are. So that uh, uh, for me personally, I share to the extent people are interested and they ask questions and um and I'm, it's, it's pretty clear when people are not, you know, there's another phrase from Jesus, don't throw your pearl before swine's feet. There's no reason to share some, some of the stuff with certain audiences. I know that people, particularly with Swedenborgianism and its mysticism, a lot of my more sophisticated Washington friends are like, you know, Rich, that's like, that's out there. And I'm like, it is out there. It really is. Um, and I love it. I love that it's out there. But um then they see me traveling in a sort of modern, you know, enlightenment world. And it's, it, it's a challenge for them to realize that, that, that guy can believe in that craziness and then have that. So I think you're right. Like you just have to pick and choose mm -hmm. what you share, what's a secret. And uh, again, don't waste your time sharing deep spiritual epiphanies with people who cannot relate to it. It, it makes no sense to them. I will say though, people do say to me, I wish I had your calm. Mm -hmm. I wish I had your peace. I wish I had some meaning and purpose, you know, particularly people at now at my age in this city, Washington, which is extremely transactional. Your value is what you're worth to me. 
and what I can get, what you can give. When you lose that, you're very uninteresting. Well, that's a very painful place to age. And uh, generally, as they get older, they're at the top of their firm, at the top of their lobby firm. That's when they reach out and say, like, I did it. I achieved everything. Is that all? Like, and is that all there is? Like, there's no laughter in my life. They cannot tell me what they're passionate about. Um, but they've achieved every, they're well-known, they're the top of their game. So there is a moment then when I can say, well, you know, this is what works for me and this is what has happened with me. But it's, it's a foreign language for them. It's very difficult, even as I'm talking to them about anything about the heart or what you're passionate or what do you love or what makes you happy. Those are, even those questions are difficult to answer when you're, um, when you're, when you're trapped in that flat world. Something about that transition is fascinating to me. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot about what makes the difference between just being older and being an elder. And there's all these um, internal things you have to have gone through. And there's a certain ongoing um, vitality and growth and learning you have to do. And if more of the older people, particularly the older people who seem to have influence or power or money, were to come across as if they were actual elders, I think that sends a very strong signal to younger people that there is something going on culturally that they can get involved in. But if they're looking at a lot of older people that don't have the archaic qualities of eldership, then what do you have to look forward to except some kind of short-term transactional game in a culture that can't really be trusted? Exactly. So, so for one, we're in a culture that uh, we're in a consumer culture that worships youth and torments people about aging and, you know, Botox and surgery and like constantly you better do, do anything you can to stay at a certain look and age and you'll be respected. But so we have that in the consumer culture. And then you're exactly right. The Swedenborg describes that we're born with childlike innocence and we go through our life and all of our challenges, our doubts, our pitfalls, our mistakes, our disasters if we've grown spiritually, we end our life with a childlike innocence, but with wisdom. And that's the ideal spiritual life for an older person. You have wisdom and innocence that you're, there's a naivete, there's a sweetness, there's an openness as you're older. But if you don't get that, you do just get, el you, you're, and that's what I would describe as an elder. But if you don't get that, you just get older people who are very unhappy and very dissatisfied. Uh, which I encounter a lot, I would say, in this secular city that I, that I live in is sort of like, I played the game, I got into the right school, I went to the right college, I got the right scores, I got into the right graduate program, I got into the right firm, I got connected to the right people, I made the right amount of money, my office is in the right place, I'm on the right street, my penthouse is in the right neighborhood. I did it all. Like I did everything I was told by this culture that was right. And I am in deep depression. I, and, I, and I don't have time for anything inside of myself. I'm hollowed out. And uh, that is a very painful state of affairs. And that's when you see here in Washington politicians who can't step down. It's because they know that the moment at 85 and 80 and 70, you know, they should be giving room to younger, mentoring young, younger people into these new roles. But they cling to it. You know, Strom Thurmond used to have to be walked out into the Senate by two people. You cling to it because you know the day that you're not that, you're nothing. 
And that's a, and uh, today I'm powerful and almighty and my vote will make a difference and I'll be on CNN. But tomorrow, if I announce this, I am the ghost of Christmas past. And so uh, it, that's why you also see this clinging to power by uh, aging boomers that should be mentoring. And so you're right. If you're looking at this as, you know, millennial and Gen Z, you're like, oh my God, like, let go and give us a chance. Um, so, yeah, we have elder. We need more elders, but we do have a lot of olders. You uh, mentioned the fascinating flip between what it was like to uh, normatively confess religious participation in the 1960s to the way that's almost reversed now. A lot of really radical shifts have occurred over that period of time, and a lot of that period of time is your life. And one of the things that's happened very interestingly in, in religious terms during that period is the enormous influx and mainstreaming of Eastern esoteric traditions into mm -hmm. North America and Europe. How did you, how did you perceive that? Cause it must've been happening over the course of your lifetime. Well, I, I would welcome it again. I'm, I'm sounding a little bit about Swedenborg, but um, the world parliament of religions, the original one that was created was, was started. The concept was started by Swedenborg. And so our, and kind of that brought Eastern religion into the West. And so we are, um, there's a wonderful book about Swedenborg called a Buddha of the North. And so we are very, um, obviously open and welcoming and accepting of it, of, of Eastern religions. But what is so interesting about it for me is, um, I look at all these secular people in the urban, the city of nothing to do with religion, but they'll do yoga and, uh, they'll do breathing and meditation. And they're very open to Eastern religions. Unfortunately, they're not usually open to the teachings. They're more open to the practices. But I think that's a deficit in Western, particularly Christianity, that got so, as we were talking earlier, so much in the head and so much in the book. And this is a problem for Swedenborgians as well, such an intellectual pursuit that it, for, it forgot about the body and it forgot about um, the heart and meditation, Swedenborg would meditate into these states that he'd get into um, through breathing um, and um, not taking care of the vehicle for this, this earth either kind of discard, you know, I don't care, but I'm developing my soul, uh, but, but I've got, you know, I'm going to die of a heart attack because I, I have done it. I haven't done a damn thing for my physical body. What I think the Eastern religions have done really well is incorporate, brought that back and said um, incorporated, but the sad part is most people yoga, you know, which is a very inclusive concept of not just stretching. It's, it's, it's a practice that is very inclusive and holistic. So we're, we're taking bits and pieces of it, but I would say um, I love it and welcome it. And I think the cross pollinization of faiths is extremely good. Um, and um, we're constantly holding ecumenical events in our, in our church. And I'm, in my sermons, I'm very often saying, here's how the Jewish community would look at this. Here's how an Eastern person would look at this. Here's, I want to get people to see how various uh, faiths look at it. So uh, I love it all. I will say this funny observation about the integral movement, though, as someone who has studied world religions uh, somewhat, again, I'm an amateur, 
But so much that's introduced in a lot of the new age and sometimes in the integral community is just kind of warmed over Buddhism. It's like, it's as if they've discovered it. And they're like, there's this idea and there's a chakra. And like, dude, you're pulling that out of a, that's a, that is a ancient tradition. It's not something you develop. So I do find it kind of, um, you know, maybe it's part of the cafeteria where people are picking a little bit. I want a little bit of Buddhism and I want a little of Hindu and um, I want a little bit of the Tao. And then I'm going to um, do some Orthodox Christianity and, and Judaism. And that's, that's, that's fine. I just find it, it's get, it often gets repackaged under um, entrepreneurs who market it as if like, I've had this new insight. And if you would study those faiths, you'd see that this, these are ancient, ancient things, but it's probably not a bad thing to bring it into the world, but it is kind of um, ironic to me. I'm like, you know, that's, that's Buddhism. Um, or, you know, one just call it Buddhism. And uh, I would like it to be taught more in its complexity as opposed to um, cafeteria, you know, faith, where you just pick this part and pick that part. I would be more interesting to see the complexity of the, of these Eastern religions, but I'm a big fan. And um, the more, you know, of world religions, the more you can understand God, as far as I'm concerned. And there's so much wisdom in these other traditions. The loss or marginalization of historical awareness is really intriguing there, right? A person who has their own personal or syncretic uh, insights then wants to publish a book as if it's never existed in the traditions, but also between the traditions, uh, so much has been lost. I used to teach yoga at churches, and we just called it spiritual exercise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, I think they liked that I didn't use the Sanskrit terms, <laughs> but there are traditions of uh, religious physical exercise in Christianity and all the faiths, but those things have been underserved historically. You know, mm-hmm. the state change practices have been underserved and they, they start to feel like they're missing from a tradition and that needs to be corrected by another tradition or by someone new who just discovered them. Mm-hmm. And it's really kind of sad that we don't understand the full richness of each of the sets of traditions that we're inheriting. Yes. And I would say the big deficit for Christianity in my experience is uh, the negative view of the body and uh, just not understanding what the body is a, is a spiritual vehicle for this life. It's not something just that we just just to discard at some point it, it's it's to be respected and treated well and uh it, it and it, it definitely affects your spiritual life your physical life so i find it um unfortunately that christianity has kind of divorced the two do you think that's um uh sort of a cultural artifact you know coming to us through rome and europe and america or do you think that um is sourced in a deep ambiguity, you know, in the gospel and in the image of the crucified human body at the center of the church. Is it there all along this uncertainty about the body or did it just get acquired along the way? Well, I think it got acquired because if you think of a unique message of Christianity of an incarnate God, a God who comes into the human body, that means the human body is something pretty special, I would think. And, uh, and that it should be, and it was incorporated I think what happened, particularly through the teachings of Paul, um, who, by the way, in our tradition is not seen as spiritually inspired, um, like the rest of other parts of scripture, but I think he puts um, a binary, that there, there's the flesh and there's the soul, and they're in mortal combat. So to the way to develop your soul, 
is to impose the flesh. Usually that's around sexuality. That's where we get all this terrible, terrible history of uh, sexism, you know, anti-gay, anti-masturbation, you know, all this stuff that came out of that, that the body is terrible. Stay away from the body, develop your soul. I think that, I think it came out of that. So then I think actually in the Roman and the Greek church, it was more united, but I do think that Protestantism and the Reformation was, you know, the people, we sort of became people of a book, of a, of a understanding of scripture. Everything was the word. And um, that's a very disconnected to the word being the body. Yeah. So I, th- I think that, that, I think that might be the history of it, but um, my gosh, I cannot tell you uh, in this generation, the number of young people who tell me the horrible things they were told by their priest about their bodies, you know, and so that's going on to, you know, in maybe, maybe not today, but in the, and certainly in the last 30 years, even people were just really told their body is just evil. It's, the, the devil's playhouse and develop your soul and, you know, in separation to it. And I think that's probably where it came from. It, you know, when I look at that symbol of the crucified, humanly incarnated divine, uh, it has on the one hand, this, you're like, wow, right. We're, the proposal here is that, the infinite is showing up in one of these bodies. Therefore, mm-hmm. these bodies can be transfigured. These bodies are worthy of that. At the same time, it's an image of one of these bodies broken and nailed down. And it's like, this is what it's like to be in one of these bodies. So there's a, for me, there's a deep ambiguity going all the way back, but it certainly took on the characteristics of the cultural pathologies through which it passed. And we inherit a lot of that. Right, right down to the, you know, seemingly rampant <laughs> pedophilia weirdness and catholicism and things like that that doesn't seem to have been there all along but some some opening to the very real strangeness of what it's like to be in a body that we experience as traumatized and weird and strange to us and as something when somebody tells us a bad thing about the body we take that on board for some reason because we have weird experiences of the body and yet we know that it can be this open, this healthier, this radiant, non-dually transfigured vehicle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Particularly, most particularly around sex. Uh, that's a very complicated topic now, but, uh, you know, sex before marriage, you have to be a virgin, um, sex outside of marriage and all that. And uh, certainly homosexuality. When you, when you repress that, when you put those restraints on people, um, this is more of a, the, I, have act, I have an active view of evil in the world, evil or dark forces, demons, they will target on, in on that. So if they think you're, you're putting that down, that's where they'll work on you. And so this pedophile scandal is really, for me, a demonic, they're okay. This is, this is, you know, and, and a lot of, some of those priests are gay, some aren't, but it's a place where there was deep, deep shame and deep embarrassment. And becoming a priest was a way to say to the public, look, I'm a good guy and I'm married to the church. And uh, it played out in quite, you know, that's how the dark forces work. They, they will, you know, manipulate. Um, so that's one reason why, um, you know, being, uh, being open and speaking about who you are honestly and confessing your sins publicly and all that, very advantageous. But when things get into the darkness and they get repressed, particularly around the body, 
um, it has very, very uh, negative consequences. I'm curious how you view dark forces relative to an evolving universe, because one of the things I think about sometimes, and like the simple way to think about it is, uh, there's nothing wrong with minerals, but if you try to turn me back into minerals, that's murder. Mm -hmm. So there's a sense in which if I view the world as unfolding and evolving, mm -hmm. then one of the things evil does is, is regress, is uh, it's the unwarranted return to simpler forms. So how do you view evil and darkness in, in an evolutionary universe? That's a fascinating question. So I believe evil or the choice to do evil is uh, sort of built into the cosmic nature of free will. So it's going to be there. And I do see periods you know, an integral map might just show constant evolution as everything is going up all the time and we're constantly improving. But a theological one or a Swedenborgian one, you'd see ebbs and flows. You'd see periods where there were like high spiritual development and that actually was followed by a period of crushing periods, which would be represented in allegory in the Tower of Babel or, or Noah, where there's destruction of the earth because things get so bad. Jesus, God coming into the world in the form of Jesus represents a period where the world was so horrible that God actually had to come in and set free will back in, 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 its, in its state. So it seems to me that it's constantly there with us, but I would say when you look at it from an evolutionary perspective, it's not the same. It's not quite as horrible <laughs> necessarily. But then again, we have like the 20th century was a pretty good century for evil. Uh, when you look at 100 million people uh, murdered by dictator regimes. So uh, we so it, it, you know, it's it's hard to say. I will look at the situation with Putin right now and in invading Ukraine and say, historically, he is doing what people have done forever. People with power have conquered countries nearby with less power, and they've used brute force to subdue them. The fact that it's the world, uh, that there's an evolution in the world, that that's a horrible thing, and we've got to fight it, and that um, he doesn't, in his speech, speeches about it, he lies about it. So he doesn't want to say, this is a horrible thing, uh, or I'm proud. Look, we killed these many people in Maripol. Isn't this great? So that actually, to me, from a someone who's very, um, I'm very into evil and studying evil in the shadow and the dark side. It's, that's an interesting evolution in the world that that's not cool anymore. And that even for a, a ruthless dictator does not want to admit that to his own people that that's what he's doing. But I think a century ago that they probably would have. So I, that's where I see evil um, moving in and moving. If you believe we're moving into a new age, a new spiritual age, heaven to earth, the holy city, these kind of images, you see um, more of heaven, more good coming into the world in this period. And so I think we're going to go through a period of great turmoil, which we're sitting in right now. I think it's going to get worse. Um, but I, I'm, I'm optimistic about the future and, and positive that um, good is overcoming evil in the world, evolutionary. And I will say of all the things that I say in my sermons, interestingly enough, that is the thing that people argue with me the most. They, do, they get very angry with me saying that there's a positive future. People are very wedded to an apocalyptic view of things right now, and uh, they will really push back on that topic. That's a, there's a fine, complex balance there with that. I taught a course yesterday, and uh, the exercise that people had the most positive response to was 
um, sort of me guiding them into an, uh, an empty doomed universe. <laughs> but the exercise was, you need to go through that. And Bruce Alderman and I had this conversation recently with John Verveke on, on grieving the death of God, right? Yeah. So even yeah. if we want to return to some new form of access with the divinity, we, we've got to actually go through it, not just think, oh, we're atheists now and it's fine, or I'm still a believer, so it's fine. There's something to go through. There's a a, a doom to accept so that you can become a post-doom individual. And I think a lot of people know in their hearts that they haven't gone all the way down, so they're not ready to come back up yet. I I like that a lot. I think we do have to uh, settle into that apocalyptic view. It, it Maybe it's one of the beautiful things about having a faith that I think you know, this is not just left to us. This universe is not just left to mankind and our brilliance and our science, and we're going to solve it. I think there are force, a force greater than ourselves is working in this universe and uh, we'll use good people for good, but we'll also go through periods where we have to learn things and uh, suffer and have setbacks and doom and gloom. And, um, and I do think you have to um, evolving to each level of spiritual development. Uh, uh, at some point it's literally in scripture. You must die to yourself to come to me. Uh, a seed must die in the ground. Jesus says for there to, there has to be, a death of your old self and a grieving of that. And we all know the stages of grief that you have to go through and uh, to come out on the other side. But I think, um, and I, I do feel like we're, we're grieving right now, the end of a, of a period in, in religion. And um, the good news is that's a, that's a good sign. That means we're coming up to something much more exciting and interesting on the other side. And that's what I'm excited about. How are you doing for time? Do we have uh, 20 more minutes or do we have five more minutes? We have five more minutes, unfortunately. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you were mentioning St. Paul a little bit earlier and the, uh, the role that he had in eliciting this sense of a struggle between the soul and the flesh. He's a fascinating character. Mm -hmm. and, uh, that argument between the soul and the flesh to me is deeply ambiguous because on the one hand, surrender and acceptance and undoing an inherent schism seems to be um, at the heart of a lot of spiritual practice and spiritual life. But at the same time, a lot of spiritual practice is about how can I exert more control? How can I not just do what's automatic or not just do what's biological? How can I be more of a person and less of a reactive machine? And that involves me intentionally struggling against what I might otherwise do. So how do you hold those two tendencies when you think about spiritual life in general? Oh, that's a, I love that. Um, the mix of that. Yeah. I would say definitely this, a spiritual practice is overcoming temptations and uh, left our own devices. What will we care most about getting as much sex as we can, as much money as we can, um, much sugar, <laughs> you know, money. So those can, those are the things, all the things that we're addicted to would be the things that we have to restrain against. And that's why I was saying earlier that people who might have a fundamentalist religion, just those rules are enough to change their lives for the better. It's like someone who has to go into the military to get their life straight. So there is something about the rules. And I think that um, the surrender part is more of um, surrendering your ego or your belief that this is all me or I'm in complete control or... Uh, I, I need to, it, it, you know, generally um, selfishness. And so that's how I would see this. Surrender is more like 
less narcissism, more empathy and compassion would be the growth on that level. And yeah, and, and taming some of our, you know, just our, our tendencies that we know these things are not good for us. Um, our doctor tells us they're not good for us. Um, and so those, uh, those things to get under control. To what degree religion is right about getting them under control, particularly around sex, I think that's going to evolve. And uh, a lot of those rules will evolve. But we're seeing even among Gen Z, a more conservative in some ways, sexual behaviors and, and millennials than their Gen X or boomer uh, before. And uh, so, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out. But uh, that's where I'd see surrender is more surrendering the ego or selfishness. And I would say that the, uh, those religio or those restraints um, is, is holding you back from uh, just indulging in your appetites. I love these kinds of conversations. Uh, I appreciate you. Uh, there's so many more places we could go. So maybe there's a part two of this conversation at some time, but this has been fantastic for today. Thanks for being with us, Rich. Oh, it's been my pleasure. It's always great. Um, it, it helped, you helped me think by asking great questions. So thank you for that. And I look forward to uh, coming back anytime. It's helpful.